So we pick up here. So far, we've made our way up through chapter 5, verse 1. And I want to remind you, I've got it back over here on the board, uh, of the chiastic structure of the book with the consummation of the marriage there uh, in the middle of the book. Uh, And again, some have outlined the book in this way using the Genesis 2 passage uh, leaving father and mother, cleaving, and, and then building on that new relationship, sort of weaving the weaving of two lives together over the long haul. That is, a, I think, a good way to, to think about this, um, uh, to think about this book as a whole. And what many people believe that we have in chapters 5 through chapter 8, after what appears to be some kind of a conflict or some kind of a separation, uh, we see that in chapter 5, uh, verses 2 to 9, some sort of um, uh, m- you know, miscommunication between this couple or different expectations, that in, when we get beyond that, that what we basically have in chapters 6 to 8 is we're talking about a period of time that's now longer than just the honeymoon phase. In other words, most people view chapters 6 to 8 not as like, their marriage two weeks after they get married, but they see this as something that's representative of years down the road. Um, And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today is more of this long view picture of marriage and what happens in in the marriage relationship needs to be happening in a marriage relationship way beyond the actual wedding. We know that marital success cannot rest alone on an excellent relationship developed before marriage, even though that's important. We know that it can't rest alone on a, uh, a memorable wedding, even though memorable weddings are, are important. Strong couples must also constructively deal with the inevitable troubles which assault every marriage. We must learn to work through troubles and not, not walk away from them so that marriages are strengthened rather than destroyed. So again, what I want to look at today in particular is how do you maintain passion and unity in marriage for the long haul? What does that look like? Uh, How do you continue to pursue one another? Because intimacy is hard and difficult for for broken people, for fallen people, right? It's building unity is, is hard for broken people, and that's why our understanding of the gospel is so critical. That's why I think when you get to a, a letter like Ephesians, even though we find so much practical help in Ephesians 5 regarding the husbands and, husbands and wives and their relationship to each other, it's why Paul spends three chapters talking about the gospel. It's why he, he, he front loads the letter with our calling in Christ, our God, God setting his love upon us, God calling us out of darkness and deadness uh, by grace, all those truths, and then how he's pulling us together into this body of Christ, the church. It's why he spends so much time talking about that because that's, he knows that that is critical if you're going to have a marriage that honors God in the long haul. You're going to constantly be going back to the truths of the gospel message. You're going to constantly be having to go back in marriage to the reality that God forgave me. Okay, God forgave me. God accepted me in spite of my sin because of Christ and because of what Christ has done. Uh, God's grace is satisfying and empowering and can be carried over into the marriage relationship. It can be carried over into the way that you respond to your spouse. 
uh, in other words, you're, you're standing in Christ, being confident in your relationship with Christ because of what the Lord has done in, in your life. That, those, those things can be carried over in the way that you forgive your spouse uh, of, their, of their sins against you and the way that you overlook their imperfections, right? All is a way of sharing what God has forgiven you. In the same way, sex can be about the gospel if we are mindful enough to make it about the gospel, but you have to work at these things, right? These things are not going to just naturally unfold in your marriage relationship any more than you're just going to naturally wake up and just honor God all day long without devoting your attention to priorities and without renewing your mind and without keeping your mind and heart on a short leash, right? And keeping those things, keeping your your thoughts anchored to the truths of what God's word says and teaches. So you're going to have to fight for this. There's a gravitational pull, okay, of sin, in your life as a believer, and there's a gravitational pull in your marriage. It's always, if you, just, if you don't do anything, you're not going to wake up 10 years later and be as close as you were, right? If, if, you, don't, if you don't exert energy and effort to build this, you're going to naturally gravitate apart from, from one another in, in that relationship. So how do you do that? How do you fight for your marriage? And I want to give you this morning six or maybe five, five principles to help you maintain passion for marriage in the long haul. Principle number one, fight for your marriage by fanning the flame of affection. Fight for your marriage by fanning the flame of affection, right? So think of your marriage like the coals of a fire, right? And one of the things that you do when the fire begins to die down is you fan it, right? You you blow on it to add oxygen to it, okay? Now, you'll remember that previously when the Shulamite, right, the, the bride in this story, when the Shulamite came in the bridal procession, you'll remember how Solomon praised her from head to toe, right? He began in chapter 4, verse 1, with her eyes, and he worked all the way down, and then we get to this essentially the, 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 the center point of the book where there's the, 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 the consummation of the marriage. And then what we see in, for instance, if we were to fast forward and go into like chapter 7, what we would see in chapter 7 is that he is still praising her. But this time he is praising her from the feet up. Okay? Now some people believe that Solomon does this to sort of invert the attractiveness. So here he's not captivated so much, or at least at first, by her eyes and her neck um, and even her breasts, but he's captivated by her feet. Okay, so he, he begins with one of the most unnoticeable areas of her body, and he starts there and he makes his way up, which which reminds me of sort of how the Apostle Paul, if you remember again, even back over in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, and he talks about in that, in that passage, uh, he, he talks about what he terms the less honorable, or in some translations, the less, less presentable members of the body. And his point is to say that even though there are members that are less presentable and less honorable, that there's a necess- those bodies are necess- those parts are necessary, right? 
they're necessary to the proper function and the health and balance of, of the body. So he, he refers there to the head, and this is in his example, Paul says he refers to the head and the eyes as more presentable than, say, the hands or the feet. Okay? So I think what's going on here in, with Solomon is that he, he is assessing her, he is looking at her and he's praising her beauty, but interestingly what happens now that they're married, and again, maybe years after the wedding, is he is noticing the less presentable parts, right? He's noticing the less, we call less honorable parts, and yet he's, again, he, he's saying they're beautiful, right? So even these less presentable, less honorable things, to him, these are things which he admires. Now, some suggest that these words are spoken, if you want to go to chapter 7 there, verse 1, that these words are spoken by the DOJ, the daughters of Jerusalem, um, which I think is unlikely, but even if that's the case, Solomon still can't wait. You'll notice in verse 6, um, even those who believe that Solomon doesn't speak the first five verses, they all agree that he speaks in verse 6 and, and essentially adds his amen to this description. So whether he's actually saying these first five verses or it is the daughters of Jerusalem that are saying these things, he clearly affirms what they say. So he says in verse 1, chapter 7, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O princess daughter! The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. Okay? Again, we, we don't find that comment in the first part of the book. We don't find that comment in uh, as something that he said prior to the day of, of their wedding. If you have an ESV, it says this, your rounded thighs. Okay, now I can just see some of the women like, listen, if my husband ever even mentions, okay, if he says that, I mean, she's going to be really paying attention to the nonverbal communication. Like, is he saying that as a, a criticism or as a praise? But this is a praise, right? ESV says, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Okay, verse 2, your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Okay, you usually don't hear a lot of compliments about navels. Okay, but he does this here. And part of the reason or part of the point of this is that he is describing parts of her body that frankly he is the only one who is going to see. So part of the beauty of this is that this isn't just about some kind of sexual or some kind of erotic kind of love, but instead a private love, okay? A love that husband and wife simply share together. So there were certain things that he noticed about her on the day of the wedding, right? As she was arrayed in all her, her beautiful garb, they were on their way back to Jerusalem from her hometown, the region that she grew up in. But these are, ty- these, are, these are things he's mentioning now that he would not have mentioned before. He says, verse 3, your, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces toward Damascus. Again, it's a little hard for us to get our minds around that, you know, uh, these these types of uh, this type of imagery. Your nose is like a tower. I mean, you know, 
Um, but I think, I think what he's just saying is it's majestic. Okay, it's like, it's like when you see the Rocky Mountains, okay? Uh, they stick up, right? I mean, they're above everything else, but, but, but not in a negative way, right? It, it, they're pronounced, um, they're prominent, we might say, but in a glorious way. We might even say that about a city skyline, right? So if you were on Kennesaw Mountain and you looked down south and you saw the Atlanta skyline, above everything else, right, the Atlanta skyline would be sticking out, but we wouldn't say that as a, as a negative, right? We would say it's as a, a way of, as a po- positive feature. Verse 5, your head crowns you like caramel, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. So he's basically, again, he's saying from the sole of your feet to the top of your head, right? So he wasn't, he wasn't just praising her in the ramp up to their wedding. Right? He wasn't just all those all those things prior to chapter chapter five, chapter four, he wasn't just romancing her in order to seal the deal. Right? He went on praising her and romancing her after the wedding because the romancing and the praising is intended to fan the flames of affection and affirmation in marriage. Okay? Then Solomon calls her beautiful. By the way, for the tenth time in this song, and comments on the pleasure and the delight that she brings him. Verse 6, how beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Your statue is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. Another one of those verses that makes you want to clear your throat. Uh, not going to comment on much on this one. It's there. Verse 8, I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. And then she says, uh, in the second part of verse 9, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Another, another key verse. So he has praised her, uh, he has affirmed her, uh, fanning the flames of affection. And again, this is, this is critical over the years. So I was just saying, if you just step back and you see all of this, all of these words of affirmation, I guess the thing that you need to take away from this, and I hope you take away from this entire series, is that this kind of stuff must continue over the years and through the, through the decades of marriage. You have to continue to do those things throughout your marriage because there's so many things that continue to assault the marriage relationship. People are usually pretty good at doing these things, again, when they're dating, and they're, they're, they're good at doing these things during a time of engagement, and they might even be good at doing these things in the first couple of years of marriage. But words of affirmation tend to be things that eventually sort of slip away over over the years, and we can't afford for that to happen. So a, a few practical pointers here. Keep affirming one another's attractiveness. Okay, Keep affirming one another's attractiveness. Keep praising one another. Keep realizing that there is something beautiful even as you age with aging bodies. So you're not always going to look and feel 25. Uh, kids... Kids, you don't have to burst out in laughter, you know. <laughs> Kids may come for some of you, 
Metabolism is going to slow down. Amen? Right? Some of you? Okay? Some of me? It's life, right? And yet, you can still be beautiful to one another. And with that, let me say it's, it is important to take care of yourself. Okay? Not that you have to be as buff as you were when you were in high school, but there ought to be an, an intentionality that you work at keeping yourself attractive. Not that that needs to control you, uh, but it is, it is important. So keep affirming one another's attractiveness. Another one, fan the flames of true beauty. Fan the flames of true beauty. If you want to know what true beauty of the heart looks like, you can go to 1 Peter chapter 3, right? True, true beauty in the life of a wife, Peter writes in verse 4 of 1 Peter 3, true beauty in the life of a wife is a gentle and quiet spirit, showing reverence, uh, loving uh, a wife loving her husband as he is, uh, not forgetting that she chose him, Okay, nobody forced this upon her. She chose to marry him. In the life of a husband, uh, true beauty, according to verse 7 of 1 Peter 3, is the quality of understanding his wife and showing her honor. Treating her with respect, treating her with consideration, uh, learning to put on her shoes, to, to learn to sort of put, put himself in in, in her shoes and walk in her shoes so that he can understand her problems and struggles, uh, caring for her and treating her as fine china and not everyday dishes. So that, that is to say that the conversation that a husband has with his wife should not resemble the conversation he has with his buddies and the conversation that he has with his coworkers and the conversation that he has with his mother and dad. Okay, There should be some similarities maybe, but but there ought to be a, there ought to be a transition, okay? When a husband talks to his wife, he, he shouldn't treat her like she's just some sort of rubbermaid garbage can to kick around the garage. It's not that not that rough housing and just kind of that that um, um, that that just common conversation. Uh, it needs to be different, and she needs to know it, right? She needs to know that she's being communicated to in that way. Uh, loving her as she is, not forgetting as well that he chose to marry her. It's about learning to hear your spouse's heart, okay? Uh, Now, you might be thinking, what if I don't like the person that I'm married to? Okay? So you've been married for for a number of years, and you're just, you're struggling, right? You're you're struggling in this area, and you're asking that question, what do I do if if I'm in that situation? Now, what if I do if I'm struggling? And, and I would just tell you that you've got to lay that at the feet of Christ. You've got to ask the Lord to give you a love that you, that you don't have. Okay, You've got to put to death the idea that love is first and foremost a feeling. And we see this all the time in marriage counseling that we do at the church um, where couples have gotten to this place where they just don't like each other anymore. And when they're, when they're in that place... Um, in, in, in most cases, it's because they have equated love with feelings and emotions. And they've got to get back to the concept that love is a choice, right? God chose to love you, okay? He chose to love you. And you have got to choose to love your spouse. Uh, you've also got to accentuate the positive aspects of your spouse. So maybe you only see three things that you feel like 
and you feel like, well, I see three positive things, but I feel like there should be 30 things, okay? And I would just say, thank God for the three. Just start with the things that you see. Thank God for those things. Accentuate those positive aspects um, and learn to serve your spouse for, for who they are, not who you want them to be, okay? Feelings don't have to be present before you act. Right thinking followed by right action will normally lead to the right kinds of feelings. Maybe not all at once, but they usually come as you respond in a way that honors the Lord. Uh, Another one, affirm and fan the flame of things that bring the other person joy. Uh, Affirm and fan the flame of things that bring the other person joy. Uh, As you get older, you've got to figure out what what is it in this season of life that is really needed in our marriage? So whether you're newly married or, or or maybe you're married with three little kids or maybe you've got grandkids, you've got to think about the stage of life in the marriage that you're in. And about, I would say, every three to five years, you've got to do sort of a reset. You've got to do some kind of an inventory and, and see how you're doing in these areas of affirmation and communication and, and intimacy and all these different aspects of married life. And you've got to find ways uh, to bring one another joy. So there ought to be things, if I asked you, what, what do you like to do with your spouse that you could name that you enjoy doing together? And it doesn't have to be something crazy like skydiving. Okay, I mean, it doesn't have to be like, you know, you have to go out and, 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 and in fact, there was a, a couple that I counseled uh, in, in the last year or so, and they went from like doing almost nothing together <laughs> to like doing these really like far out. Like it was so, if, if you met them, you'd just be like, they would never do these kinds of activities. And they just launched out there. And I honestly had a concern that they were doing these things thinking that all these crazy like activities together were going to be the thing that solved and brought them back together. And in fact, what happened, I think, is that that, that quickly diminished, right? So I was just trying to say, you don't have to do all these, these wild things, right? It can be something as simple as sitting together on the couch. If that brings you joy, that's important, right? It could be as simple as going, uh, walking around the neighborhood, okay? But you've got to find those things that bring one another joy in marriage and begin doing those things on a, on a consistent basis. And that's going to vary. I'm not saying don't go skydiving, okay? I'm not saying there aren't couples out there that are like, wait, well, that's what we love to do. If you love to do it, great, go do it. I'm just saying don't feel like it has to be something that is, you know, maybe what might be considered kind of way outside the box and, and dangerous. Okay, uh, another, fan into flame the specialness of your relationship. And this goes back to the concept of exclusivity. So I would just say, wives, there should be parts of your body that you don't let anyone else see but your husband. And there are things that you should say that only your husband is privy to. And husbands, there should be parts of your heart that you don't let anyone else into but your wife. Parts that you reserve. Okay, your wife needs to know that there are things about your heart that nobody else has access to except her. So there, there, there are emotional things, uh, difficult circumstances in marriage that are, that are very hard, and yet 
you, you get to walk through these things together as a couple. And rather than thinking of those things as a threat to your marriage, which they could be, I think those, when those troubles and trials come in marriage, we've got to embrace them and think to ourselves, we get to walk through this pain together. I mean, I've seen couples go through very difficult circumstances and the circumstances tear them apart. Uh, and rather than using this, those trials of life as a, as, a, as a context to draw near to one another, they actually allow those difficulties as to, to, to come in and to serve as a wedge that actually drives them further apart. So be grateful that there are parts of your relationship together that are so special and so unique that it is reserved only for the two of you. So, number one, fan the flame of affection. Principle number two, keep getting away. Keep getting away. Most couples, when they first get married, are pretty good about breaking away from the routine of life and spending time together. But most couples also don't do a good job of continuing that habit. And, and, and I'll hear this sometimes. They'll say, well, we don't have, we don't have a lot of money. Well, that, that's okay, right? Um, many, in fact, I would say many of those couples that say, say that, you know, well, we don't get away. We just don't have a lot of money to be able to do that. A lot of those couples that will use that excuse are also couples who spend money on the latest gadgets and technology or other things that go beyond the list of basic needs. Okay, so sometimes it's just a matter of looking at their budget, right? And say, oh, no, you spend, you have excess, you have some extra cash. You just spend it on other things. And you might need to just reallocate some money in, in your budget to, to getting away every so often. So, and it doesn't even have to cost you, right? It doesn't have to cost you a lot of money. Again, the Shunammite here in Song of Solomon, if you'll pick up there, verse, well, verse 10, I am my beloved, my, his desires for me. Verse 11, come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. So here she is inviting him to come away with her back to the country where they can see the vines in the pomegranates. Verse 12, let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. So again, she's... She isn't just asking him to come to the botanical gardens, okay? Uh, there's, more, there's more here than just let's see if the flowers are blooming, all right? Uh, most admit that it's difficult in this dialogue to determine whether the, where the romantic imagery ends and where reality begins or, or vice versa. Verse 13, the mandrakes have given forth fragrance and over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you. My beloved, which, by the way, married couples have got to figure out how to communicate about their desires for sexual intimacy. Okay, we've talked about this along the way in this in this study. Uh, most couples struggle with the awkwardness of knowing when or if to initiate uh, sexual intimacy. Uh, wives may sit back and do nothing at all. Husbands may may want their wives to initiate, but it's not one person's responsibility to initiate this. I say that based on the text we look at, looked at last time, this 1 Corinthians 7, 
where Paul says that if you're a husband, your, your wife doesn't belong to you, but, but belongs to your wife. And to the wife, your body doesn't belong to you, but it belongs to, you, to your husband. I think what Paul's encouraging there is mutual aggressiveness, okay? Mutual initiation. It, it shouldn't be all on one person in the relationship to initiate physical intimacy. It, it, that, that, should, that should be something that is shared by both. And I know there's struggles with that, um, but but you've got you've got to to figure out how to communicate about these things, and 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 it can get thorny, feelings can get hurt. Um, a husband or a wife may feel insecure and not want to risk uh, being rejected. So you've just you've got to work together on this this area. Uh, some couples have just practical ways of communicating about this. Um, you know, I mean, you might have a special candle that comes out, right, as some sort of a signal to initiate physical intimacy. You might could hang up some mandrakes, you know. <laughs> if you want to take some of this literally, just hang up some stuff, you know, some fruits. You put a fruit basket out on the counter. Uh, you've got to find a way to communicate clearly and graciously, okay? So you want to be clear, but you want to be gracious because... As much as we strive to communicate clearly, there's always the potential when you're dealing with two fallen people, always the potential for mis- miscommunication. There's always the potential that one of you is AM, one of you is FM, and you're just, it's like you're not even on the same frequency in these areas. And you've just got to be patient and gracious as you, as you move forward uh, in these ways. All right, back, back to the idea of getting away. You, you need to do this, Okay. You need to carve out time during the year and through the years to get away together as a couple. And it doesn't have to be top shelf, okay? In fact, you don't even have to go out of town to do this, okay? But you do need to take time to think, to plan, and to talk about where you've been as a married couple, where you are, and where you're headed, okay? And again, I would say every three to five years, you just ought to be, you don't have to do this like really deep reassessment every time you get together. Um, but there ought to be certain times when you actually do take a, a sort of a, what have we done in the last three to five years and, and what are some of the things that we'd like to do? What are some of the goals we, we think that we need to have in the next three to five or so so, year, uh, so years? Uh, some of you who have younger kids may need to make a pact with another family in the church that they watch your kids for a day or two so that you can get away in exchange for, exchange for you watching their kids so that they can get away, okay? You might even choose to stay at home. So if you have young kids, it, your choice may be that if we could get the kids, somebody to help us with the kids, we might just decide we don't have to necessarily spend a hundred bucks or more to go down down to Atlanta to stay in a, a hotel for the night or to go out and do this particular thing. We might just decide to stay at home because it's quiet, right? And it's it's rarely that. I mean, if you've got if you've got young children, okay. So some of you some of you may need to just and I'm just trying to help you with practical steps here. Because what, what I don't want you to do is to feel a sense of conviction or you know what? Yeah, we need to work on these things. I, we need to think about that. We need to talk about that, and then you never go talk about it. And you never actually do it. So I'm just saying, just trying to give you some ideas. If that's a, if that's a struggle for you, because you've got children, maybe think of another couple. Just make sure that couple's kids are well behaved, because you're going to have to watch theirs. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, but figure it out. Okay, it's going to take some planning. 
but you got to make it happen, okay? Find a way. Find a way. And notice what she says in verse 13. And over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. That is to say, there's nothing wrong with old things. There's nothing wrong with going to the same restaurant or wearing something that reminds your spouse of a time earlier in your marriage. But it's also important to incorporate new things, to go to a new restaurant, to wear a new outfit, to get a new fragrance of cologne, right? So be creative. Uh, Lay up some new treasures in your relationship. Find new ways to show love. Uh, It's good to have traditions, but it's also good to be sporadic and to do new things. Okay, well, that's what I find. I find that in, in marriages that I know... Uh, in our church that, are, that I feel like are, are strong and healthy and vibrant, if, if I were to interview those couples, I guarantee you I would find these kinds of elements there. Couples that connect with their past and say, yeah, we go to that place because that was the first place that we went on a date or, yeah, she wears this particular thing or he does this particular Things that rem- remind them of the good, the, the history that God's given to them and thankful for it, but they don't just keep it's not just repeat, repeat, repeat. I mean, they go there for that reason, but they're also looking for new things, right? They're looking for new ways to to um, experience that unity and that joy joy together. So it's, it's a balance of both. So keep fanning the flames of affection. Keep getting away. Number three, keep celebrating your spouse. We end the Song of Songs where we began, right, with the couple falling in love. This is a good way to think of the end of the book. Falling in love all over again. She says this in chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. Which seems strange here, uh, what she says, but I think in essence... Uh, what she means is that she wished that she was able to openly display her affections for him because in this culture, in that ancient ancient Near Eastern culture, you would only sort of publicly show affections for family members. So the idea, I think, is that she wanted the whole world to know how wonderful he was. So this might be a good question for us, for husbands. When your wife isn't around, do you affirm her to other people? Right? In other words, and the way that you talk about her, uh, those expressions of, of affirmation, you know, is that, are, are those things present when she's not around and when you're in the company of others? Wives, when your husband isn't around, do you affirm him and speak well of him to others? Verse 2, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. Again, a sexual reference. Verse 3, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. So there's the, this idea of intimacy and closeness. So you just, you just again, and we're down the road. So again, this you keep celebrating your spouse. You learn to value them in public. You learn to speak well of them when they are not around. And you learn to celebrate the simple things in life, a life that tends to be full of taking care of home and children and cars and yards, right? So your life, every one of you, your life is full. I mean, I just don't think there's many of you that are just twiddling your thumbs throughout the week with nothing to do. 
your life is full, and if you're married, it gets fuller, and if you have kids, it gets fuller, and it just it just keeps going. And you have to you have to be intentional about this, celebrating those simple things. Verse four: I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Which is an interesting statement that this uh, shows up here, as she she is. She is enamored, it seems, with the beauty of marriage and the beauty of sexuality in her marriage, and yet she refers back to not stirring up love until it's time. Because we saw this phrase in those, first, those earlier chapters of the book. Uh, one author says this. He says, At the end of it all, she looked back on her journey and said, We did it the right way. She had a sense of satisfaction. The depth, the gratitude that culminated in this joyous proclamation, we didn't arouse love until it was time. And the result was a love that was incomparable, a love unquenchable. All the hard work, all the conflict, all the romance, all the wrinkles, all the extra weight, they're all worth it, end quote. So it's very possible that that's what she's doing is she's, she's, simply reflecting back to the days prior to marriage and the commitments that were made and the fact that they started their relationship in the right way. And she's just celebrating sort of in hindsight going that we started right and then those same things that were the foundation and provided a strong foundation for their relationship prior to the wedding, that they've continued to build on those things. So it could just sort of be a kind of a, if you will, a flashback to that time. That's possible. Or she could be referring here uh, to her, what we might say, her nearly uncontrollable passion for her husband, even a married, and the fact that even a married woman needs restraint. So she could just be so, it's like there's, she's so excited about her husband that she, even though she's married, she's still thinking to herself, don't arouse these things until the proper time in the sense that we're in public because some of these things are being said, it seems, in, in, in that setting to say, I have these feelings, they're very strong, but I need the same sense of self-control now as I did then, (laughs) but in a different way. I'm married now, but I'm in public, and so I need to even restrain what's in my heart and my strong feelings for for my spouse. And remember, all this is what followed, I think, what is a conflict and a misunderstanding in chapter 5. So that is to say Solomon and his wife were committed to reconciliation a reconciliation that strengthened their relationship and heightened their love. So we we find this, and we'll come back to this, I think, in the new year. One of the things we are, I think, where we're going in January for at least two to three Sundays, we're going to talk about conflict resolution. So rather than dive into chapter 5, which talks about conflict in marriage, I think what I'm going to do is come back in January and do a short series on conflict resolution but broaden it a little bit because it's not just something we need to learn how to do in the context of marriage, but in every relationship. So I want to sort of kind of broaden that out a little bit, and that's that's why I kind of skipped over that section. But what's interesting is that this conflict happens in chapter 5, but then all these things we're looking at right now follow that, which tells me they worked through the conflict. They were committed to biblical reconciliation, and if you will, these are actually the things that helped them to work through it. Right, These kinds of commitments are the things that allowed them to successfully work through times of conflict and difficulty. All right, number four, stay committed. Stay committed, which is a critical truth 
knowing that we live in a culture where only about 40% of American married couples reach their 25th anniversary. Okay, verse 5 uh, says, Friends, uh, perhaps the friends of the bride in the vicinity of Shunem, uh, where she uh, grew up, if, if the couple has indeed returned to the place of their romantic beginnings in this area, uh, this region of Jezreel. Verse 5, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? The bridegroom then says, Beneath the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave, gave you birth. Then comes her request for permanence in love, followed by descriptions of the all-conquering power of love, which is the kind of love that this entire song is celebrated. Verse 6, Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. So this, this image of the seal... Uh, rests on the, the ancient practice of carrying a seal either on a chain around one's neck or on one's finger, if it were a ring, sometimes attached to, uh, to the arm. Uh, the seal being something used to generate an official signature that had the effect of claiming possession of something. And so the, the, the import here is double. There's, this, there's the proximity motif, the idea that she wants to always be near to him. And then there's this idea that she wants him to commit himself to her, taking her love as the signature mark that he is committed to her. In other words, this is about the absolute devotion of a couple in love, or we might say an unbreakable devotion. It's about being united and bound to each other. And the remaining metaphors assert the ability of love to conquer anything that challenges it and end with a comment on its supreme value. She continues, For love is as strong as death. Jealousy, or you might... We think of jealousy, we tend to think of, a, of, negative, of the negative side, but it's, it could be translated passion uh, in a more positive sense. Jealousy, passion is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago, I, I misspoke about... we. we about whether or not God's name is mentioned in this book. Uh, Esther is the other book, by the way, uh, the other Old Testament book where God is not mentioned by name. But this is one place in Song of Solomon where there could be a reference to the Lord. Um, The bride here is describing the strength and the intensity of true love, and then she compares this love to a fire, and you'll notice what kind of fire, and, and, and the translations in our English Bibles are a little bit different here in verse 6 and, and how this should end. The New American Standard and ESV say, say, say the very flame of the Lord. The NIV says like a mighty flame. Uh, the King James, New King James, a most vehement flame. Uh, New Living Translation, the brightest kind of flame. And the reason that some translations have this the, the, the title Lord and some don't is because there's a word here for flame and at the end of the word there's a part of, of, of the name of God. We, we, Yahweh or, or Jehovah or Yahweh, there's that, that's sort of this, this proper name of God, the God of Israel. And the first half of that, Yah, is attached to the end of the word flame. And so that's and so I've actually got if, if this in the in the far right, the top is the Hebrew 
right to left, the, 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 the sort of the transliteration is the second line, and what it is, you have this Y and this H with the A sound in between. It's attached, so it's just, it's, it's very uncommon, uh, but that's why some translations say the flame of the Lord. It's, it's like they don't know how to translate it. Uh, it kind of leaves us with the flame of the Lord or the Lord flame, uh, or it could just be a, a superior a way of saying that this is a superior flame. Okay, it's definitely not Sid, Lord of the Flame, right from DreamWorks, Ice Age. Um, so Lord Flame, Flame of the Lord, a flame from God, a superior flame. Verse seven: Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. It's just simply saying love has an overwhelming power to it. It's the kind of thing that says, I'm going to walk through this with you. I love you just the way that you are. Even when you are sinful, I'm going to love you anyway. And describes a love that is immovable, intense, invincible, unquenchable, and cannot be bought. Right? It's so invaluable and priceless that it cannot be purchased, only given very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All right, number five, try to wrap up here. Keep, keep pursuing, keep pursuing. Skip down the, to the final two verses of the book. Verse 13, this is the bridegroom, Solomon. Oh, you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. So he wants to hear her voice. He wants her to be near. Verse 14, hurry, my beloved, um, by the way, which is the 14th time that she's referred to Solomon as my beloved or her lover since they were married. So since the wedding, she's called him this 14 times. <clears throat> Again, just to say, we have to keep doing this, folks. We have to keep affirming and affirming and affirming and affirming. Okay? She says, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. So the idea is keep jumping over the mountains, keep lively, she calls him a gazelle and encourages him to come to her in love. And um, listen, we, we live in difficult times for developing strong marriages. Um, your background is different in many ways from Solomon's and the Shunammites' background. Your culture is in some ways different from theirs. But the basic principles are timeless. Uh, unfortunately, just knowing the principles... Um, is not enough, right? You have to do them. You have to practice them. Uh, even doing them occasionally won't produce the results of a joyous marriage. You have to commit and then discipline yourself to make the pattern of this book the constant theme, the constant theme song of your marriage. So your marriage is important. It's an amazing gift. Profound grace. It's a priority to God. You, you need to make it a priority by taking practical steps. So I asked you the question, what is your next step? What is your next step? Some of you have shared with me your plan, and I'm grateful, right? So some of you actually caught me in, in previous weeks and said, this has made me think about such and such, and we're going to do something about it. And you've shared those things, things that you will do, plan to do in, in the coming weeks and months to strengthen your marriage. That's been a very, it's, it's been a thrill for me to hear that, but, but you've got to get after it, okay? If you're looking for a good book on marriage, I've got several, Love That Lasts, What Did You Expect? <laughs> oh, that's a great title. 
what did you expect redeeming the realities of marriage uh, when sinners say I do? Okay, I mean, I, I use this, I would say 9 out of 10 married uh, marriage counseling cases that we do. This is great on conflict resolution, communication, relational intimacy. Our Family, God's Way by Wayne Mack is excellent and just specifically on the issue of communication. Over half this book is on communication. So if that's a struggle for you, that's a good one. Uh, actually, this is brand new. I brought it. Those of you who are single, Danger Signs of an Unhealthy Dating Relationship. All right, so if you're, if you're in that phase, that stage of life, this is a great tool. Uh, it's like 20 or 25 things to look for to make sure that your, uh, your, your relationship's on, on good footing. Uh, if you're looking for a good sermon, sermon series, ask me. You're right. I'm not going to give you all the all the websites and all the all the all the links, but there are some there's some good things out there if you want to go further with this. If you're looking to get a conversation started with your spouse, you're welcome to grab one of these. Okay, I have questions for maturing a Christian marriage, but you got to look at the fine print at the top for those who've been married less than five years. If that's you. This stack is for those who've been married five years or more. Okay, so there's different sets of questions, but I printed, I think, enough of those for every couple to take one. Um, and if you're looking for a couple to get with so that you can, a couple that you, you, you want to encourage you and give you some helpful counsel, just see me. We've got lots of couples in the church that would love to do that. Um, Matt Chandler in his book, we'll finish with this, The Mingling of Souls, ends the book with this. He says, One day our marriage will give way either by death or by the Lord's return. In any event, our marriage was not built for eternity. Okay, which is hard to understand. That marriage won't be a central reality there because before I got married, I had no category for how wonderful marriage would be. And now that I've been married for 24 years, it's hard for me to imagine that in the new heavens and in the new earth, things will be so much better that I will be okay not being married to Kelly. But that's the case. That is how glorious it's going to be. And then he says this, In any event, our marriage was not built for eternity, but the sanctification our marriage will bring into our souls is. One day we will be presented to our Redeemer like a bride adorned for her husband. Then, when we see face to face, we will understand what marriage was truly about. And until then, we enjoy the mystery. Until then, we enjoy the mystery. All right, folks, I have enjoyed it. I think it's been edifying, encouraging. I've gotten a lot out of it. I hope it's been a benefit to you. And like I said, we'll come back at the first of the year. I think we're going to talk about principles of conflict resolution for two or three Sundays. And then, Lord willing, I think we're headed towards First Thessalonians. Um, so that, that's probably going to be the, the, the next book that we jump into. Um, still trying to, to make up my mind with that. But that probably won't begin until February. So, uh, But thank you. Um, I appreciate you guys being attentive. I know we went a little long today. Not that we've never done that right so all right uh what do we need to do do we still need to break down still got to break down okay so if some guys can help us uh stack the chairs we'd appreciate it thanks folks and uh, don't forget if you want one of these sheets you're welcome to grab one